You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Defty, with my co-host, Naomi Land, from the lovely town of Bowen, Queensland, Australia. Hey, Naomi, how are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you, Peter? Oh, I'm good and randy. How are you? <laughs> So, um, Randy, for a great conversation, um, because today we've had, we have on the show two previous guests, but we have them together, and um, it's uh, Dr., I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the shameless self-promotion, Dr. Peter Ballerstead, a PhD type doctor, a rangeland forage agronomist, is that correct, Peter? Forage agronomist, uh, some background in rangeland, but that's a whole other discipline. Okay. All right, and then the lovely and uh, very articulate uh, and passionate uh, Adele Height, who's sort of a sort of a rock star out there. Um, although she she uh, manages to piss a few people off here and there, uh, probably not <laughs> just as, a few. I, I probably have I probably have that record on you though, Adele. I, I tend to piss off everybody. <laughs> so, but um, we're gonna have a conversation today about the whole messy food politics. And this was, a, I'm going to take, give Peter the, the credit for pushing this, this concept. So uh, we want you, the audience to just join in and just listen and take in uh, this conversation as it ranges from forage agronomy to food politics and policy to all the way down to how this happens in Australia. And, and where let's go from there. So, um, let's start. Who wants to start? Peter, you want to start with this? Let's let you start. Yeah. Since it's my fault. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think it was 2010 when I first met Adele Height, and um, we were up in Seattle, and I was at that time still in my uh, extended sabbatical from uh, agriculture. I had left uh, university and then found a job working in high tech. But about three years prior to that, I discovered a uh, restricted carbohydrate um, diet because of um, my prediabetes. And then uh, three years. Um, I was uh, an obese, um, what, whatever my age would have been then, don't want to do the math, um, and I had low uh, HDL cholesterol, I, you know, was uh, carrying my weight around my middle, I had uh, a little high um, triglycerides, uh, my blood glucose had been trending upwards over the years. Don't know where that scratching sound came from. Um, and um, so I was basically ticking off the boxes on the risk um, um, factor checklist. Um, and, and being, you know, so that would have been seven years ago, so I would have been 54. Um, and... Uh, so here, five hours away from me, I was going to get a chance to listen to Mike Eads and Gary Taubes and Jimmy Moore was there and, and Steve Finney was going to be there and, and many, many other people. 
and w I didn't know that the highlight was going to be uh, Adele Height. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we, we ended up having dinner at, during this time, and, and we, we just struck up this conversation that basically has run, um, it's still in process. Um, I've gotten to bring her, um, since that time, I've gotten to get back into agriculture. Uh, since that time, I've gotten to introduce her to the forage agriculture industry by having her come and speak at, at the uh, American Forage and Grassland Council meetings, and we've done some other things in conjunction as well. And I, I just think it's really powerful when you can have sort of two people representing the two sides of, of this conversation come together and relate to the people that are there. So, so your, your role has been largely as a bridge between the agricultural community and food policy. Is that what you're, you're saying, Peter? Um, well, so far in, in the way that I've described it, yes, but I think I'm seeing evidence of what I've been saying to those people who are interested in the, the sort of more dietary side of it. I've been trying to make sure that they're aware of some of the ecological facts regarding ruminant agriculture and, and forage agriculture and soil health as well as these impacts of health itself um, that typically aren't considered in some of the conversations. Well, and, you, and you're, you're, I'm seeing that you're, you're speaking at a number of uh, low-carb conferences too. So good on you there. And uh, Adele, welcome. Yeah. So hi. Thanks for having me back. Um, my side of that same story is on the flight out to Seattle, I was literally banging my head against the bulkhead because I had gotten on the plane a few hours after checking out as many forage <laughs> and ruminant um, agriculture books that I could find at UNC, which quite honestly was not that many. I was at the wrong university at that point. Um, but I had a stack of about 10 or 12 of them, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, not only do I have to be an expert in the biochemistry, not only do I have to be an expert in the physiology and the anatomy and patient care, not only do I have to be an expert in the history and the politics of nutrition policy making, but because in the US, in 20th and 21st century America, health and um, the, the things that we tell people about health and the things that we tell people about the ecology and the environment are so closely linked that rhetorically we can hardly pull them apart. And this is um, famously captured in um, Dean Ornish's uh, comment where he's always he's walking around saying what's good for you is good for the planet. Of course, Pete uh, totally agrees with this statement, um, but from a totally different angle. Ornish, of course, is making the claim that um, a a vegan super low fat diet is what's good for you and it's what's good for the planet. Um, I think Peter, on the other side of that, would say, you know, a ruminant based diet is what's good for you and what's good 
for the planet. But my point really overall is that we can't pull these things apart rhetorically. When we talk about what's good for us as humans, automatically, ever since the late 70s, because this is how the guidelines got created, is around this idea of environment and ecology. Um, and what it, and one of the reasons for calling for a reduction of meat in the first place was because we thought we were going to save the planet doing it. So we've, we, we, we cannot pull those things apart rhetorically. We can't pull them apart historically. And so I felt like I had to educate myself about that. And then I happened to sit um, next to Peter at dinner and this immense wave of relief uh, came over me because I realized I wouldn't have to be the expert that I could rely on him because he understood the nutrition. Um, and, and he was going to help me understand the, um, the agricultural aspects of it. And it's, it's just been a match made in heaven as far as I'm concerned. Well, well no, and it's wonderful because, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do ha here is, is get some, some really hard facts out and, and, and let people literally ruminate out over it, <laughs> um, <laughs> these facts, without, without scaring them off, but without trying to sound like we're right, they're wrong, and create this, this politics. And I'll, I'll chime in later on some of my thoughts about this because I've, I really kind of do a lot of thinking. And, and um, my, my background is in biological science and plant science uh, from UC Davis. So this whole thing about where we fit in that biological system and how we dovetail in with ruminant uh, ruminants and how ruminants work in agriculture is kind of uh, a, a very fascinating thing to me. And there's a lot of well-intended advice. I think we live in this rhetorical uh, world of, of politics and and wordsmithing. And, and, you know, one of the clearest things I've seen today is in the last 15 years is how every company wants to have a green patina on them. And yet the products they're making are consumables now. I mean, uh, I, th I think some of us, Naomi, you're the youngest one here, I think. Um, but Peter and certain and I are certainly Peter and I are older, and it's like things that used to be uh, durable goods are now consumable goods. You know, your cars, your phones, your computers. You know, they they have a certain life expectation. You turn them over, yet yet everybody wants to be green. Um, and so we want to kind of parse through that today, and 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 get that kind of uh, information out there. So, um, Peter, what, do you, what would you like to say? I, I was uh, speaking to someone a little earlier today, and, and the thought comes up of um, if, if we accept the idea that um, our diets can be higher in animal fat and animal protein, or if we accept the idea that animal fats are different than plant oils, especially hydrogenated plant oils, um, and if we accept the idea that protein from animals is different than protein from plants, then that kind of can open up a conversation, for some at least, in terms of where is that going to come from? How readily accessible are those items just out in the, quote, natural world, which itself is an interesting, you know, title. Um, it, it has the green patina. It also isn't really burdened by any hard definition, so it kind of free floats around. 
Um, I there, there there are a number of things that just kind of make me scratch my head. Um, one of which is, you know, the uh, the organic label on cigarettes. <laughs> now, you know, and I'm the kind of person that says, oh, but wait, they're saying that the cigarettes are only made with organic tobacco. So there's other stuff in there that apparently isn't certifiable as organic, but the tobacco is. What is the implied claim there about that product versus another brand of cigarettes? Um, or, you know, take it back to nutrition, if I see organic Pop-Tarts, which, which I have... Which they make. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, I, I have a picture of organic Gatorade. So, so maybe that's one that we can all, you know, sort of relate to here, is organic Gatorade. What's the implication of that product? Uh, um, I mean, Gatorade itself is pretty bogus, but to be organic... Now that, that that's better. Okay, that, that's fine. So this is the world that we now live in. Um, some of us live in. Some portion of humanity lives in this. Others aren't yet burdened by it, although they are affected by it um, to a growing degree. So how do we, how, how can we be effective communicators um, how can we avoid the traps that would allow, for example, um, if, if, if I go and I speak to um, um, uh, an agricultural audience and I really want them to learn, just on a personal basis, you know, human interest, one-on-one, -on -one, um, about this, there, there's a body of information that says that if you have these symptoms of metabolic syndrome uh, and you look around ag audiences and you shouldn't be surprised to see many people qualify, um, then there's solid research that says that your doctor should be talking to you about uh, adopting a restricted carbohydrate diet as sort of a first step to see what we can do to address these, quote, risk factors. And then there may be even better metrics to look at than the risk factors. Well, what book should I read? Well, okay, now I start recommending some books. And some of those books, the people, God bless them, start talking about how cows explode in the feed yard as a result of feeding them grain. Is this Monty Python? <laughs> no. No, I, I think they were serious. You know, uh, I, I get. No, no, no. There's a thing called bloat that can happen, and all and many cows, given enough heat and enough time post mortem, will explode. But the, the, um, I don't want to get too. Graphic. And humans, but yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we, that happened at the Western States Hundred Miler this weekend too to an athlete who was trying to force 400 calories an hour down his stomach. <laughs> He told he was the it was his race to lose and he lost it, so yeah. Back to bloat, but yeah. So yeah, so so there's just there's just some things we know in our discipline, 
And, but there's many things we don't, and the trouble comes when we start reaching across to other disciplines and we start talking confidently about things that maybe aren't so. And, and, and so how do, we, uh, how do we not get fall into that trap? How do we, uh, and, and again, what Adele said about some of these things we may not be able to, to parse. Um, they may be so intertwined, but it's, we should know that. Um, right. We should all recognize that going into it. Um, you know, one of the slides that I use is this slide, and, and it's sort of leveraging what Adele turned me on to, and it's how books like, you know, The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich led to books like Francis Moore LePay's book, The Diet for a Small Planet, which is cited as a reference in the Dietary Goals for America, which is the product of the Senate subcommittee that led to the USDA creating dietary guidelines every five years, starting in 1980. Well, what's a vegetarian cookbook doing as a reference in dietary goals? So, I mean, a belief system then leads directly to public policy. And that public policy now affects everything. Um, and maybe Adele can talk a little bit about how there was, if not yet achieved, certainly a goal to have all policy aligning with dietary guidelines. Adele? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's um, in the most recent um, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report, um, one of their primary talking points was to have this cultural culture of health in which um, the dietary guidelines and all of the rest of American culture would be aligned in efforts to um, have people eat the USDA HHS defined idea of a healthy diet. So it's, it's quite um, it's quite disturbing <laughs> on many levels, um, especially since the, you know, it's one of these things, I, I'm sure you all are familiar with the notion that obesity rates um, started to climb immediately after we came up with these guidelines in the first place. And, and the, the question is, um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to focus on what it is about the diet or not about the diet. People thrive on lots of different kinds of diets. And, and I'm not even fully convinced that obesity in and of itself, the way that we define it um, for these purposes, is as much of a health problem as we make it out to be. But the point is, is that we created this policy that was explicitly meant to prevent this particular condition. And what seems to have occurred is that immediately after the creation of that policy, the thing that we were trying to prevent occurred in abundance. So, so, so the response to this has been, in true um, governmental form, to double down. 
on the recommendations in the first place and to push the blame off on the individuals. Well, and Peter, I know that you've, you've heard this all the time, people never followed the guidelines, the snack well effect where we all, all apparently followed a low-fat diet by eating lots and lots of snack well cookies. Um, you know, the food industry took this idea and ran with it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, Americans are dupes of advertising. They're dupes of the food industry. They just want um, convenient, tasty, cheap food. They don't care about their health. All of this um, came after. These were explanations that all came after the guidelines turned out to not work. If you look at what's really interesting, if you look at the newspapers between 1980 and 1990, the, the articles read like this. Americans taking up low-fat dieting, Americans exercising, um, low-fat foods flying off the shelves. All the, all the media reports make it sound like America's, Americans totally bought the whole low-fat diet and exercise notion. When, in around the early 1990s, they realized that Americans weren't getting thinner, that they were actually getting heavier, then all of a sudden it was Americans are lazy, Americans aren't really following it. So what changed? You know, only the results, only the awareness of the results. So the, my point is that, that this um, situation is one that is bigger than than life, you know, this is a huge, this is about government, this is about how healthcare is delivered, this is about, as I, as I was telling you guys, my dad, my poor dad put on a cardiac care diet um, for, and he has no cardiac, he has no history of heart disease at all, but he was put in the hospital and he got put on a cardiac care diet. So this is a big machine that just churns away. And, um, you know, I keep trying to get my fingers, you know, to get a grip on it somehow. Um, but, but as Peter's right, this goes way back, and it begins with an ideology that um, has enmeshed us in this idea that people are responsible for their own health, but then we're going to tell them information that isn't particularly helpful and then blame them for the results. Well, it was very, it was, it, yeah, yeah, and and of course in Australia they they sort of follow the same guidelines because aren't you like num yeah. coconut um i don't want to get too far off into that because it could get me into real trouble but we we have just had a scandal show up um where um organic grain certified as organic came, was coming in from turkey and entering into organic livestock production and i would assume into some organic processed food production 
but the the context that I heard it was relating to um, livestock, uh, and and now it's pretty clear that this you know wasn't uh, in fact organic. It was just people fudging paperwork. Um, but it would be the same thing as you know some time ago. I I heard that at one point more virg extra virgin olive oil was being sold than was being produced. Um, <laughs> So that's a lot know, of virgins. Yeah, they, then they resist getting pressed. Um, so <laughs> this is this is a, a, a problem, um, but it's a it's a very lucrative problem. We just had one uh, food chain get purchased for thirteen point seven billion U.S. dollars cash. Um, by a large um, uh, high-tech uh, interest who's just um, jumped into retail food um, space. Um, and this, this uh, retailer made its reputation on um, at least um, being fuzzy about health claims, if not actually spreading fear uh, about competing um, forms of food. And if you are familiar with the conversation behind the scenes, you know, that, that's troublesome, um, especially when you have people who have a hard time being able to access um, safe and what some might call healthful food. Um, I, I as Adele was talking, I remembered a, a, a graphic that I went looking for. Um, unfortunately, in this country, we treat health and health care and health insurance as if they're synonymous terms. And, and we have these arguments and we yell at each other and we don't make any progress. I went looking for what factors contribute to health outcomes. And I found this really interesting graphic, and I think it comes from like LA County in California. But they break down four major contributors to what they call health factors. Health behaviors, clinical care, social and economic factors, physical environment. And of those, they put 20% of what the contribution to the health factors, 20% of that is clinical care access to care and quality of care. Health behaviors are 30%, that's tobacco use, diet and exercise, alcohol use, unsafe sex. I'm reading directly from the graphic. Um, the social and economic factors is the largest contributor, 40%. Education, employment, income, family and social support, community safety. Physical environment is the smallest, it's 10%. That's environmental quality, that's built environment. Now, if that's true, okay, I'm just an agronomist, but if that's true, we are massively misapplying resources. And likewise, if all we do is focus at diet and exercise, we're also missing the point. I mean, it's important, don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying I'm you know, going to go away and forget about it all, but if, if somebody just thinks that they can tweak their diet a little bit and all the rest of this 
remains as you know it, it that's the problem with diet studies isn't it you've got healthy you know adherers right the pink bow tie that Adele talks right. about um, they tend to do lots of things that all contribute to health but of course we get done with the study and we ascribe any difference between the pink bow tie wearers and those that don't like bow ties and say well it's all because of the pink bow tie or the diet uh, and and we're you know talking about billions and billions of dollars being spent on you know access to clinical care when if I'm understanding these numbers right we could get rid of clinical care completely nail the other three com absolutely and be better off now um, it's hyperbole I, I understand that but Part of why I think we're where we are is because some within the, the scientific and clinical um, communities in the 1950s were envious of what had been achieved in the communicable disease realm. And remember, the, the polio vaccine came out in 55. Right In the preceding decade, we had had the wonder of sulfa drugs and penicillin and all that. Right, and, and, and so now you have these people that like, boy, I want to make my mark there. What could I, oh, look at all these killer diseases, especially heart disease, you know, because we had a president who had a heart attack in office. And I... I haven't spent a lot of time digging into that, but I won't be surprised when somebody does and finds out that this was a lot of jealousy and ambition and ego. <laughs> we know ego uh, was involved. Uh, Mark <laughs> Hegstead, actually, there's this terrific quote by Mark Hegstead who um, supervised the writing of the 77 goals where he was going, he, he's pretty much said, you know, funding for nutrition, interest in nutrition um, had had just tanked um, in the 60s. And he um, attributes concerns about obesity for rescuing, quote unquote, um, the nutrition research. So, hmm. you know, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a real thing um, until we, um, so we, we, I think you're right, Peter, and they took the, the methodology for addressing communicable diseases and diseases of deficiency in nutrition and diseases of toxicity in nutrition, and they simply took that methodology and they just plopped it right down on these lifestyle concerns. And, you know, it worked all right for smoking, but it does not work. It has never worked for diet um, and you know for all of the reasons that you just said that that people can't people who choose to eat a healthy diet what are are a different kind of person one of my favorite studies was this um, eggs and diabetes study where uh, the authors I th I'm trying to remember the name of the author um, the juice I think is I'm probably mispronouncing that horribly but he um, he did a meta-analysis of, of 
eggs and their association with diabetes. And he included studies from across the world. And what he found was that if you live in the US, there's a fairly strong association between eggs and diabetes. If you live anywhere else in the world, there isn't. Now, how do you explain that? Damn, and I think damn North American chickens. Right. I think the best explanation for that is that in the US, we were told that eggs were bad for you. So people who um, have a lot of investment in being healthy, who have the resources and the time and the capability to um, perform a lot of health-related behaviors, whether or not they work, um, including dietary behaviors, those folks are going to be healthier, probably for a lot of those other reasons that Peter mentioned. Probably it has something to do with access to clinical care. It probably has a lot to do with um, their social and economic um, standing. And then probably there's some contribution of physical environment. The diet may have very little to do with it. Certainly eggs have, I mean, I don't even understand what the biochemical relationship between egg eating and diabetes might be. But the fact that this line, this association is flat in other countries tells us that this is not about something that's happening in our bodies. It's, it's about something that's happening in our discourse. It's about the way that we talk about food to people. It's what we've caused them to believe about food. And a lot of it, I think Peter's right on the money with that. We've created this sort of a magic feather of, of food where um, we treat food in, um, Al Harper talked about this way back in, um, in 77, we've created this sort of magic talisman um, effect of food where if you just eat the right food, you, um, and, and this is as bad on, on the vegan, vegetarian end of the spectrum as it is on the paleo keto end of the spectrum. If you just eat the right foods, you can avoid disease, you can live forever, you can never, you know, you can, the anti-aging, they have, you know, the anti-aging diet. I'm sorry, what are you going to do if you're not going to age? You're going to age. That's what you do. So <laughs> it's crazy what we've um, asked food to do for us culturally and socially um, it, it, since the dietary guidelines came out. Well, certainly Ansel Keys was one of the key drivers of that. His ego right from the World War II with his starvation studies was to make a, a big mark for himself uh, in life. And then taking this further, you know, it, it's kind of ironic. I, you know, we all, I think the focus is on diet because of this whole fear factor and, and diet. It go, you know, for me, it all goes back to the most, you know, the evolutionary pressures that shaped us and, and food being critical to survival. It's very easy to form a belief system around it. And because you look at, um, the human condition and you know we want easy simple answers because we are creatures of convenience and so looking at it historically you know politicians and religious leaders tend to be those people who can give an easy quick answer that people want to hear and, and convince them of it um, yet you know when you get a, a conversation like we're having here today it's it's a much more complex thing there's a lot of shades of gray you know, we're, we're saying, you know, while the diet's important, it's one factor and there's so much more. And, and these belief systems are just 
just huge in, in how they get wrapped up in our minds. And then, you know, because of this whole thing of, of religion and politics and simple answers, when you get people believing something, usually that belief system is formed with something of a, an, an embedded subconscious fear factor, like, you know, telling people you're going to eat eggs and red meat and you're going to die. Uh, you know, so then you people stop thinking. And so it, it prevents that sort of discourse. And so, you know, I've seen this time and time again, but to that point, I work with a lot of athletes. And because these people are pushing their bodies to the limit in a lot of aspects, we actually see where diet does have an impact in terms of when you see these athletes who are following the healthy, high-carb, low-fat diet, literally these people who are super health conscious and living all the other parts of their life perfectly, how they literally can be, their health uh, outcomes actually can get worse <laughs> rather than better because of that pushing themselves so hard. So it's quite a fascinating, um, you know, it's, we're all over the map is I guess what it is. So, you know, it's a messy um, sort of uh, morass and we're trying to help people understand that it's not just this black and white thing and, and that we have to converse this and, and kind of understand the why to get to the how. And, and I guess it, uh, I think we've spoken before that in this culture I expect to see um, an adoption within sport to then ripple out into the um, society in general and and that's not a unmixed blessing I think but um, our culture obviously holds certain people up for um, you know worship um, you know there, there's a there's a quote from H.L. Mencken that says the the urge to save humanity is almost always the false front for the urge to rule and I get really nervous when I start hearing some of the language about if we're going to do this, we'll save Earth, or um, you know, and and you know, we need to advocate this so we'll save so many billion lives a year, or whatever the crazy number is. Obviously, that's absurd. Um, but what they're doing is they're extrapolating from these predictions based on faulty research that says that you know, if everybody ate this way, well, at one point even I forget. Who somewhere along the line somebody involved in the dietary goals or guidelines actually started talking about how many you know this would save so many you know heart attacks a year or deaths a year and and obviously this hasn't been borne out and, and these are people who had an inability to imagine unintended consequences or certainly an unwillingness yeah. to yeah. see them well I think so yeah, so I want to, let's contextualize that. Back in 1970, so the, the, the McGovern's hearings, which is where this all began, they went, they, they encompassed a large part of that decade. And so if you think about um, what the world looked like, right, just a snapshot, um, you know, it was Remember the Hearst kidnapping? Oh yeah. Remember all those all those bombs and airports and things like that? I mean, people, you know, people running scared today with with um, terrorist threats. This was happening um, 
all over the place in the in the 70s. It was it was a scary time. We had just come from the um, sort of counterculture, rise of the counterculture in the 60s. Um, it looked for about uh, 10 seconds there like the hippies had won in Washington with Jimmy Carter getting elected and um, and then there was this sort of radical swing in the other direction and you have to remember Richard Nixon even um, talking about national health insurance that was Richard Nixon was pushing national health insurance well, back then Richard War Nixon what yeah, Richard Nixon was a Quaker, and Richard Nixon is also responsible for the EPA. Yeah, so so you have these, um, you know, these ideas of 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 caring, of um, being, you know, concerned for the environment that are I think that were very real and very meaningful to a lot of people, and then. Um, what you had happen in the 19, you know, building up during the 70s and then um, sort of really hinging on the election uh, across the world of a lot of, um, you have Margaret Thatcher, you had Ronald Reagan, um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones, but we, we had what we call in cultural studies the rise of neoliberalism, where all of these ideas about um, concern for um, ecology, concern for others across the globe became not the responsibility of the government, not the responsibility of institutions, not the responsibility of corporations, but the responsibility of the individual. So now, if you want to be healthy, it's you. It's on you. If you want to save the planet, it's on you. If you want to feed the hungry, it's on you. You need to change your behavior. You need to shape up. You need to um, avoid this food or consume that food. And you need to basically, and, and Peter's heard me <laughs> say this many times, you know, you're going to go and you're going to shop your way to, um, to a better world. And we, as Americans, because we like to shop, by golly, we jumped all over that. And that is a powerful, powerful um, ideological and, of course, economic driver for a lot of these ideas about what it is that we can, can, can do with food and can't do with food. And I would, I would add to that context that one of the first scares that we had regarding food in America was back in the 50s. And it was revolving around cranberries. And yep. then, you know, you could look at Alar and you could look at these others. And, and what people realized is, one, this is a way to drive uh, sales of uh, newspapers and clicks when that finally came around. And, um, you know, it, it, it also empowered a number of um, NGOs and not-for-profit organizations whose livelihood now depends on yep. maintaining this. And, you know, God bless America, that's great, except... <laughs> that you know we have human lives here at stake on both sides of the equation you know production people at the lowest level of the production chain by that i mean the actual farmers are the ones that get hammered every time one of these things happen um and and then you have what happens to consumers because they get driven um to 
um, well, what, 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 is, what is the level of stress induced by one of these events <laughs> due to... That's a good point. Uh, you know, so, and, and, and of course, we can factor that out later when we look at the data. Um, so, <laughs> and, and I, I just, um, and so when I go, uh, you know, we, we just had a, a major, well, not just, but a couple months ago, we had an absolutely horrific wildfire that spread across the panhandle of Texas, panhandle Oklahoma, southwest um, Kansas, uh, southeast Colorado, that area. And I think it's well in excess of 600,000 acres. And at times it was advancing 60 miles an hour. And people lost everything. And, and a lot of that area is rangeland. So fire is part of rangeland. But, um, you know, they lost entire herds. And, and you know, this, these are human beings, right, that, that are in this. They, they are the ones that are producing the food that drives the diet that I argue pe certain people need to be following. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe it's ego, maybe it's my blind spot, but I really dislike when, you know, vested interests step forward and start talking about others as if the, they, the speaker, are virtuous and clean and pure and have absolutely no vested interest in this at all, while these people over here are the bad people that are destroying the planet and yada, yada, yada. And, and then when I can start easily deconstructing their arguments, like what is it exactly you think is being done here? Well, okay, where's the data to support that? Uh, okay, here's some data that refutes that. Well, now it's this. So now we get into the whack-a-mole game. And, yep. and, and, you know, at the end of the day, and, and I just had this experience where I, I tried to get some institutional buy-in to re-examining the narrative and was basically told, you know, no, we're not going to do that um, because there's too much, um, well, my reading is we have too much poli uh, funding at stake. And oh, by the way, you know, all my teachers taught me this. If I were to start questioning it now, what would that mean about me? Um, so it's human nature. Um, but how do we? I think that this has to be from the bottom up. I, I think that this has to be from consumers, whoever they are, whether they're athletes, whether they're wealthy suburbanites, or whether they're. Um, people who are living in a tent, and I have a neat example of that from Ted Naiman, um, as a physician up in the Seattle area. And, and Ted told me about, um, uh, he has someone who's living in a tent, homeless. He went and went to the uh, thrift store, bought a cast iron skillet, he has a propane stove. He goes to Safeway, which is one of our, you know, just generic retail food chains. He buys the 80-20, 80% lean, 20% fat hamburger when it's on sale. He buys the lost leader eggs when, you know, he gets them as cheap as he can. That's what he eats. He cooks that. He eats that. He's spending $7 a day for food and propane. 
God bless America. He's lost 70 pounds, I think, in a year and normalized his, his you know, profile. At the same time, we can point to a woman whose experience involves as a grandmother being homeless and she's got her grandchildren with her, I think. I may be off on that, it may be her children. In any case, she's living that experience she then, you know, gets to go through that and out the other side, and she gets interested in food policy questions and initiatives that are aimed at um, dictating how food gets produced, ideologically driven, and she becomes aware of how that would impact food cost. Well, she's got her personal experience to look at, and she's now involved in this, and she has someone actually say, that she, that this person that's speaking to her, that she's more concerned about animals than starving children. Yeah, that's, that is a striking, I know exactly. Um, yeah, and, and that, that is a very, very striking comment. I'm actually going to play that um, for a presentation at a conference that I, I'm gonna talk about um, feminist vegetarian ethics. Mm, um, because, <laughs> yeah, but it no, it feeds right in there because, um, you know, again, this is something that grew out of the 60s and 70s, and and feminists are sort of um, ideologically tend to be vegetarian and vegan. Well, let's and, let's yeah, let let me let me context. I've been waiting for this, and you kind of set it up. So I was gonna I was gonna blame it on all the females here. Uh, yeah. it, because there, there was this very You're like, on your I, own, Peter. Um, I, like I say, I, as Naomi knows, I, I like to piss women off for some way because ch chicks dig me, right? <laughs> no, but it, we really let, let's 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 for the audience, let's look at this because I've thought a lot about this, and there was this really messy confluence of a number of factors that started coalescing in the '50s, starting with Dwight Eisenhower and his heart attacks, and leading to Ansel Keys and his seven study. Um, seven country, fourteen country. How, how many countries he was studying? But you had the right. right, and you had the Vietnam War, which was an outgrowth of a bungled post World War II situation, where the French went to take back Vietnam when we we basically promised Ho Chi Minh to have his own country, and the the Vietnam War led to the Vietnam anti war movement which led to the hippie movement, the, the feminist movement, Gloria Steinman. And it was a whole, as you said, a whole counterculture, but it also gave rise, the feminist movement gave rise to women's empowerment, which was, which was really a good thing. I mean, they could have orgasms, they could have birth control, and guess what? They could go into the workforce, and women started going into the workforce in droves. And um, this gave them economic power, but, but also a lot of women gravitated into fields of interest. They weren't going to go out and be roughnecks on drilling rigs. Uh, many of them became nutritionists. Um, and also at the same time of this, we had the um, Green Revolution. You remember that, that uh, Borlaug got the Nobel Prize, right, for the semi-dwarf wheat? Um, and on top of that, then right following the Green Revolution, we had the Farm Bill with Earl Butts, right? And so all these things kind of coalesce to where, you know, and what I'm saying in terms of a nice way about women is really that in terms of, of species, you know, the males are the ones that go out and kill and destroy stuff. And the women are the ones that, 
the give life and nurture stuff. So the tendency is to not go out and kill. And it was Come really to the lions. Yeah, well, yeah, but that's <laughs> yeah, the but African the, lions, as I recall, the females are the principal hunters and the males come. But that's well, yeah, I yeah, yeah. But but in terms of of the humans, the the women's, okay. it's, it's, it's as I say, it's all about the seduction. It's it, it we've some you know somebody was able to market this very nice, holistic, plant based sort of op- option to people without giving them all the facts about where we really fit in the cycle of life. And so I think with, with a, and a lot of the, the people who went into nutrition were female at that point because that, that's, you know, women were, ter- and I'm not saying this in a, in a male chauvinistic way, but women were traditionally the people who kept the home even when they started to go to work. They still were the ones doing most of the cooking and, and, and all that. So it just sort of, it sort of like morphed into this, this thing where, you know, killing was bad and, and, Growing plants was good, and and it, it sort of take took a sort of you know national mindset, and 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 those entities you know went with it because it 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 gave them a huge political base to go from. Well, well di- dietetics grew out of home economics. There you go. And then got it did, and then it got science. Affied, <laughs> um, I, I you know I don't know what's the good word. It, it got. So you got home ec, which was, you know, that was a, that was a, you know, I've run a household. There's a, you know, there's some skill and some technique and some knowledge associated with that. But then the, um, the science of nutrition, which it's a very young field, even if you're just talking about diseases of deficiency and toxicity, it's still a young field. It's, you know, a little more than a hundred years old, got smacked down on home ecs um, so that, the professional, so the diet, so that dietitians could wear this mantle of professionalism, and and then refer to science instead of, oh, you know, things like experience and things like tradition, which we used to gather some of our wisdom from those places. And and I I got nothing against science. I love science. Um, biochemistry is my favorite. <laughs> those were my favorite courses, but. Um, but you can't learn everything from science, unfortunately. And, and science, too, is a lens through which you look at the world, which is also subject to its own um, politics, its own paradigmatic thinking. You know, the way that we see the world um, has to do with who we are and where we are in, in, in that world, um, historically, culturally, etc. And And science is subject to that as well. And we can't, so we can't extract science. I, when, I'm, when I'm teaching this to my students, I go, scientists don't float in a glass bubble above the world. They, I can assure you, they all eat. And if you go on the internet and you Google um, Walter Willett, say for instance, the father of nutrition epidemiology, there's this wonderful, wonderful Boston Globe article about him and his wife, who's a, um, you know, apparently a really good cook <laughs> and um, used to be a really good baker and um, enjoyed making desserts. And of course, she's sort of been forbidden to do that um, within her family. And of course, there's a story about getting his sons to eat the healthy diet that he expects everybody to eat. And you and you realize that, you know, every scientist who publishes a paper on nutrition 
has to make decisions about their own food in the morning. Um, and that matters a lot. And you're right, Peter, Peter, one of you, Peter, both of you, Peters, is that when, when, those, when those people making those decisions are women, and for them there is this ethics of care that has been sort of um, spread out to include at least the doughy-eyed animals, not necessarily the cockroaches and the crickets, but um, the fuzzy animals, right? At, at, at the very least, the fuzzy animals. Um, then, <laughs> then we don't, you know. So, so you're right. I think there's this there's this bizarre sort of confluence. But I do want to point out that that Gloria Steinem herself, so she wrote this wonderful article in the same year the first dietary guidelines were published, so this is in 1980, and she said um, that women had been denied protein because we were at the bottom of the food chain. Um, women had been, had, had, had all of these um, over the ages been forced to sort of have their bodies um, conform to whatever social uh, norms were, um, were present at the time. So she says, what is rare and possessed only by the powerful is envied as a symbol of power. So in poor societies where there's little food, plumpness is valued. And in more so fortunate societies like ours, where women become plump on starch and sugar, if nothing else. So she's talking about um, where women become plump and on starch and sugar, if nothing else, leanness and delicacy in women are rare and envied. Boy, she hits a bunch of really, really important themes right there. That that this is not just about diet; it's about poverty. Because who are the poor people eating? Who are the people eating starch and sugar? The, the, the people poor. who are poor and, and can't afford meat. And um, when you have like, the woman that you were talking about, Peter, what was her name? I, um, I have to dig that out, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the, uh, but her quote where she's at this conference and this woman stands up and goes, well, quite frankly, I do care more about the animals than I do about poor people. What does that say about us as caregivers that um, we don't even know these other human beings who occupy our world enough? We don't know them well enough. We're not close enough to them, but we're close to these images and these notions and these ideas of what animal and animal life is, animals and animal life is like, that we are going to prioritize those animals over those humans. And the irony of it all, because I've been following that whole stupid egg debate, is that it doesn't provide a better life for the chickens. The chickens are not safer. Well, they're uh, not more healthy. You're, you're absolutely right there. There's a reason why anybody that grew up on a farm, farm knows that there's a pecking order. Uh, literally, literally, <laughs> literally, and chickens, chickens, and and I think that that's a good good thing uh, that you're saying that because that, that's that that chicken cage debate is like, yeah, you know, and and I think it's important for us to context it that we're not saying that anybody has bad intentions here. These are like really good intentions, no. but the old trite saying that the road to hell is is paved with good intentions. It's so true today. I mean, I, I heard. Yeah, I heard a quote just this past week about ignorance isn't always malevolent. Yep. Um, but the the thought that comes, I know Adele. I've asked you before. You know, the numbers on how many people out of the population are really, you know, vegetarian? And then there was some bizarre statistic about how many times a week the vegetarians ate meat. I mean, it was. Yeah. Well. It Depends on how you define vegetarian, and and that's, you know, 
I think that's a, that's a real issue because people who consider this out themselves to be vegetarian and and would um, sort of check that box on a survey actually eat meat occasionally. Well, and, and my my wife, who's a researcher, but in a in the plant pathology and soil science, you know, she one time mused the question, well. If you're eating an egg, you might as well be eating the chicken. <laughs> From a DNA standpoint, it's the same thing. Yeah. There you go. And there so, go. so, I think one of the things that we constantly are coming back to in this conversation is the um, imperative on the part of some folks that we create a one-size-fits-all. Um, system, whether it's for diet, whether it's for agriculture, whether it's for a particular environment. I think, Peter, you made the really good point. You know, fire is natural in certain circumstances. I'm, um, I grew up in eastern North Carolina. If you didn't have fires come through um, the pine forest every now and then, the pine trees wouldn't grow. That's what stimulates their growth. And they candlestick up above. And, and, and we, we saw this. And this is, so now we do this, you know, controlled burns and things like that. But fire in other places would be a sign, uh, you know, would be a problem. And so it's, it, we can't draw these lines and go, fire is bad or fire is good. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Fat is not good or bad. It's good in some contexts and it's bad in others and for different people. And why? This is just like the biggest mystery to me. Why do we need to have, you know, one diet to rule them all, one um, mode of animal production to rule them all, one way of looking at our environment? I mean, the environment differs from, you know, one place to another within, you know, just a few miles. And we need different approaches for those differences. Well, and even even if I had exactly the same soil type, split only by a fence with neighboring farmers, um, there would be different management practices because there's two different farmers, what works yeah. for one. And, and so, yeah, it, it's like the one size fits all is stupid except for my version, which of course would be right for everyone. Um, right. And, and so it's, it's, it's really hard. I was just having a conversation over lunch uh, with someone who's from arguably a, a you know, viable discipline in, in science. And he, it took a while, but I got him to read good calories, bad calories. And then, the, you know, what was your reaction? And, and part of his reaction was, you know, how could they have gotten away with this, right? How could... How did uh, another version of that question that I've gotten is how did we get here? Um, you know, because and again, I'm I'm dealing with people who are used to operating in different fields and they haven't spent any time really thinking about the information we're getting from these other silos. Unfortunately, you know, we just take it and we move on, we ignore it or whatever. Um, but now we're to, we've reached this point where I don't think we can afford to ignore it anymore, literally and figuratively. And, and the, the question is, how do we have these conversations? And part of it is, I think it all gets back to one of those factors of health, which is our relationships with different tribes, right? It, it, we can't stay within our own little bubbles. We, we have to start meeting these other people 
and it's it, it's been my good fortune to run into people like um, Adele and like you, Peter, and like so many others. And and now the question is, how do we, you know, what 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 do we need now to help people feel more comfortable in moving forward into whatever it is they choose to do? And, and so so. Yeah. I have a suggestion. This one has been this one has been nagging at me. I I vote. <laughs> if you made me queen of the world, my first rule is I'm going to I'm going to pass a rule. Let's just stop being horrified by what other people eat. Okay, let's just Oh, let's you just mean we have to stop judging that. others? <laughs> I, I don't know my Twitter feed, this. it's so horrible. It's, I mean, oh my God, you'll never believe. I watched this mother give her kid a cupcake. Oh, I was so horrified. I wanted to yank it out of her mouth. It's the same as giving your kid a beer. Well, you know what? So what the hell, right? Good grief. I mean, and then, and then, of course, the flip side is it. Oh, this, you know, parent is feeding their kid a uh, eggs and bacon oh they're trying to kill their children and give them heart disease let's stop being horrified by other people's eating habits and let's let's just stop that rhetoric well it, it, and it goes Sugar back to what it's not a poison yeah Neither it's is fat and and, <laughs> and that's the thing we're, we're, we're very robust and in that moment it's not going to kill us but it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the the whole thing when exactly what you're saying Adele is it's just seeding that fear Yes. And well, see, it, fear sells. Yes, it does. Um, you know, and it divides. And, and it gets but it also it, divides. It, and that leads to power for some. And it gets so people is, to stop thinking. Yeah. Um, and and so it's uh, we've we've got um, we've got this wonderful opportunity in front of us. What what's the joke about? They used to say if you give a million monkeys typewriters, they could reproduce Shakespeare. But now, thanks to the internet, we know that's not true. Um, <laughs> oh. we, we, Amen. We, we have access to so much information, and we are so uninformed, or ill-informed might be the, the, the right term. Um, in, in, in my, you know, to sort of tell a family, you know, secret, in forage agriculture, we knew for a long time that we were having this problem with one particular species of grass in a large part of the United States. Animals weren't performing properly, we were seeing problems with the animals, and we began to wonder whether it was, you know, because of some, you know, maybe we're putting too much nitrogen on the grass, and so we started, but if you don't put enough, if there's not enough nitrogen there for grass growth, it doesn't grow because it doesn't fix nitrogen. And, you know, then, okay, so you're now doing, when can we put it on so we still get yield, yada, yada, yada. A few years later, we come to understand that what we were seeing was a, 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 a product of a fungus that was actually living within the grass plant. And disrupting the biome in the ruminant. Well, in a sense, the, 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 as a result of this, this, symbiotic relationship between the fungus and the plant because the fungus was allowing the plant to survive uh, in harsh environments. Um, it was producing alkaloids. Those alkaloids end up being vasoconstrictors in the animals. Okay. 
Um, and, and so now we know that. Well, then we had to go through some other episodes. But I, I think Taubes has said something about science is limited by the technology, or the, the questions that science can ask are limited by the technology available to it. Yep. So, right. So, yeah. so, so what, can, can we get away, well, well, yeah, maybe this is a good out for us. You, Adele, in your paper, uh, and I'm, now I'm gripping on the, the title, but basically it was looking at the 2010 dietary guidelines. Yeah. And, and the, the quote that you used was from Gerald Reven. And, and his quote was something along the lines of, what we need is less advice and more information. Yep. And, and what would it, you know, how can we foster the communication of advice and get away from the judgment, the, the virtue signaling, and the advice giving when the advice turns out to not be well grounded. Um, yeah. and, and that's the challenge that I think is in front of us and the danger for some of our friends in various tribes is that we just change one set of advice for another um, yep. rather than sticking with the information and we pull all those other behaviors along because they're probably somewhat rooted in, in human nature. Um, and and the, the last thing I'll say is that we, um, we, we become box jumpers, right? We, we, we exist in this box and we don't know it's a box until somebody opens our eyes to, hey, look, you're in a box. And you go, oh, well, that's terrible in a box. So now I jump to the next box yeah. instead of breaking through that box and bringing whatever is appropriate from that box with me. You know, I now just exchange box content <laughs> instead of growing. Um, and somebody just recently gave me the quote about um, we we read, we repeat, and we we are rewarded. It, well, that's exactly because uh, as a, as opposed to read in question, which can lead to trouble. <laughs> well, and it, it gets kind of messy too because, like, I've been doing this since I've been doing this this fat adaptation since two thousand. Everybody just laughed at me, but if you look at the context of today, the low carb keto thing has come off the rails. You've seen these the rise of the new communicators who position themselves as sort of the innovators or the gurus. And you see so, so many of the paleo people have now jumped on the keto bandwagon. They've jumped that box, as you say. I mean, it's, this is a perfect example. And and looking at the current keto low-carb movement, I'm we're, a bunch of us who understand it much better, I, I, I would not say I'm, I'm an expert because I'm always learning, but who understand who are asking the questions and whys and thinking about it, we're sitting there shaking our head because of exactly what you say and, and this whole, what's happened, I don't know if you've noticed this, Peter or Adele, but this the, in the last year, the keto low-carb movement has become this didactic box jumping and then you have a bunch of paleo gurus jumping in now and it, it's just the perfect example of exactly what you say and, and you know, uh, of course, if you know, we were all pretty young when the dietary 
guidelines came out and everybody was avoiding eggs. I still remember my grandpa, my grandfather avoiding eggs, but we, you know, we didn't understand, but that was the same thing. And, and now keto is the sort of a new version of uh, low fat. Yeah. Well, I, I would, I, I, I'm seeing the same thing as well. And it's, and, and I think that Peter's right is that it's just really polarizing. Um, and so to take Gerald Reven's quote a step further, and, you know, he's calling for um, less advice and more information. And, I, I, you know, in this day and age, we are inundated with information. And it's not that I want less of it. Um, you know, I think science should continue to do its, its thing. But I think what we need is more conversation. And this is what I see as really painfully missing in the world of nutrition. And by conversation, I do not mean the kind of conversations that Marion Nessel and Walter Willett and David Katz have that go, um, we're right and you're wrong. Um, Gary Tobbs tells the story of Alice Lichtenstein coming to one of his lectures. And then when it was over, she just stood up and went, oh, that's all been refuted and walks off. Um, that's not a conversation. A conversation, is, and we have these in other academic areas um, where there are legitimate um, differences in perspective and people actually converse about this. They, they go, well, here's what you think and here's why I think differently and why I think differently. And the other person has a chance to um, you know, sort of absorb and, and take in those ideas and then respond. And it is a conversation. It's, it's an exchange of ideas and not a battleground, which is why, it, which is what it is in nutrition. It's just, it's, it's somewhat bizarre. Well, it goes back to that fear factor and because food is so key to survival, you know, we have that fear and, 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 that fear factor. And so those belief systems are just so embedded in us and our confirmational bias is so strong. I, I really feel, feel, cause I've spent years, you know, being laughed at and yet this, this makes so much sense, you know, getting your body to burn fat and metabolize fat. And, and, and so I think that that fear, because like you say, you know, my wife or Peter certainly working in forage, my wife working in soil science, you, you're not working with something that directly impacts you. So it's much easier to have that objective academic conversation versus something that's, you know. Where you have to make a decision yeah. a number of times a day about what it is that you actually believe. Right. And it's fun. It's really kind of odd. And I'm not knocking my wife, but like, like I have, a, I run, one of my running friends has a 3,000 cow dairy and he gets paid a five or $6,000 a month bonus for his milk because of the bacteria count so low so so um you know i go there and get fresh milk fresh unpasteurized milk and my kids and i and my wife just like she's scared to death because as a pathologist she knows of the quote-unquote potential risk factor what she doesn't know is how you know, what that potential, and she's a scientist, so, but she just goes to that worst case scenario rather than look at the benefits and the risk factor in that. And, and so that's a really good example. I think that that's how it's really been embedded in so many people about what is healthy and what is not. And then, 
then you know we can go off on the whole tangent is when we get that fear going, we get the cortisol response and the whole physiology of cortisol and stress <laughs> is one more thing. So it's, you know, I, I would like to see, I would like to see more real conversations. I would like to see more academic conversations in the world of nutrition. I would like to see, you know, instead of these ridiculous, um, you know, oh, cats and Willet and them having their old ways consensus conference. And then you got the low carb folks over here um, preaching to the choir at their conferences. You know, Richard Feynman's been calling this for calling for this for a long, long time. And it's something that I, I think really needs to be taken seriously. We need to have a national conversation about food, not a, I'm going to beat you into submission with my stack of PubMed articles, but you know, what's going to, what can we do that's really going to make a difference with regards to people's health? Well, and I think also we should context the science too, because you're, you're right about this because, you know, it's interesting because nutritional sciences, you know, you're looking at, I, I, my, my personal estimate based on everything I've seen is, is like 98% of published studies don't even pass the muster in nutritional science at least. And, uh, particularly, um, in, uh, sports nutrition, Um, they 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 don't even pass the muster as science. You know, a lot of them are core, You know, a lot of the science that quote unquote reaches the public is correlative, which is not science. And then when you go in and look at a lot of these nutritional um, science stu studies, they um, you know they don't pass the muster of experimental design. And I think that that needs to get out to the public, but also the scientists. You know, a lot of these nutritional scientists need to become more humble because I think this thing, like you say, people get plastered with these PubMed studies and, and, and the context of study because the reality of it is, you know, science, today's science and today's studies, they're trying to isolate one, look at one particular aspect and, and control the variables in the other, correct? You guys are both scientists, right? It's, it's control, the control the variable. Nutrition epidemiology of chronic disease, and I separate nutrition epidemiology of chronic disease out from other forms of nutrition epidemiology, toxicity and deficiency. Nutrition epidemiology of chronic disease is, um, is madness with a method. I mean, it is just, there's, there's, it, it's not, I, I don't know that you can call it a science because, I, and I've tried to do this, where's the scientific method? That's right. You know, you're, you start with a hypothesis, then you go and observe, and then you collect your observations, which are not free from a bias that you generated during your observation with a particular hypothesis. You can see this very clearly in the food frequency questionnaires that Harvard uses. Um, they ask, how many servings of yogurt did you have? Did you have low-fat yogurt? Did you have fat-free yogurt or did you have full-fat yogurt? They don't ask about the sugar in the yogurt. They just ask about the fat. So that alerts whoever is answering that as to what is the bad guy, you know, what's the bad food component here? Well, we know. We've, we've pinned it on fat, right? So, so this is, so you take that sort of observation 
and then you put it in a giant database and you create these models that if they don't if you if you set up the model and it doesn't come out with the result that you expect here's my question who's going to know no one you rewrite the model that's, right no that, I mean, that's you, exactly <laughs> right and 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 a couple of things the audience should know is like like when you form that hypothesis and you're doing a, a rigorous scientific study, you're trying to actually prove yourself wrong. And and not in nutrition epidemiology of chronic disease. Right, right. <laughs> and 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 you you make a good point there, Adele, because there's a lot of uh, what I call intellectual dishonesty among a lot of these nutritional professors. And I I I point to a study that came out. There was a study that was cited by a a rock star PhD nutritionist at UC Davis who writes for Runner's World. And this is what gets to the public. She cites that carbs are still the king with ultra-endurance athletes. And she cites a study um, that has a sample size of three and uses a food questionnaire. And and so you, you we all, all of us here know that that's not science. However, the, the average consumer doesn't know that. And yet that person who wrote that knows absolutely that's not science and should never have, you know, wrote that article. And so I, I think that that's why I say some of this, this arrogance of using published studies needs to come down to the context of how does this apply to the real world? Because when you're isolating a certain aspect of nutrition and then controlling the variables, that's very different than the real world where you've got a very messy set of variables that are constantly changing and highly dynamic. Well, are, are we trying to, are we trying to get information that we're incapable of getting using the tools available? I, I think so. I, and, I, that this it, is, and there's this nothing has wrong. been the problem from day one. And, and that there's nothing wrong with that, except if you happen to have your ego and position and power vested in the maintenance of the myth that you can provide those. And, right, right. And, and so, but, you know... There's, there's a quote about, you know, when people stop believing in God, they don't stop believing. They just find some substitute. So it's become scientism. It's become, right. you know, we'll worship the guy in the white coat, and the high priests really have that. You can tell them because they have the stethoscope, right? Um, and, and so, and, and we don't, you know, we're, we're being trained to not take care of ourselves but put ourselves in the hands of these uh, anointed and at some point the realization is that we can't be serviced like a car um, that and and right now you know the vast majority of the health spend is on what ends up being bad choices um, not to put a judgment on the people that make them, they were misinformed, right? So it, it, we, we haven't done a good job of making people aware of what contributes to health, right? So Well, I don't think that we really know. I mean, I think that's the, you know, yeah. we know, yeah. we know a lot about diseases of deficiency. We know a lot about toxicities. Yeah. We don't know a lot about um, 
prevention of chronic disease and and remember that we're talking about chronic diseases of aging as yep. you you all pointed out earlier we were dealing with contagious diseases infectious diseases for many many years and then when people started to live longer it's almost as if we needed some other way to incite that fear that's come up so often in this mm -hmm. conversation mm -hmm. and so then the the issue becomes you know, not how to avoid tuberculosis or pneumonia or polio, but how to n avoid what? Death, getting mm. old. Yeah, yeah, this exactly. is what we do. <laughs> um, and so it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it, you're right. And we do end up worshiping scientists. I, I got to see Walter Willett speak um, a few years back and I was awestruck <laughs> by the level of nonsense that I heard and um, just to you know to summarize his talk he said we have so much trouble measuring calories in and we have so much trouble measuring calories out that what we should really use as our measure of energy balance is weight weight I quote him directly weight is the best measure of energy balance so in other words we're going to look at people's weight and from the weight, <laughs> from their difference in weight from year one to year 10, we're going to extrapolate and be able to tell you how much they've been eating or not eating or exercising and not exercising. It has nothing to do with, oh, I don't know, getting older, a change in medication, um, stress, um, lack of sleep. No, we're just going to use their weight and then tell you from their weight change, how much they've eaten, and how active they've been. And that, that's what I was saying about how science wants to look at one aspect, control the other variables, and yet real life is, is exactly what you're describing with all those other variables. Well, and that's not even, you know, weight isn't, <laughs> um, let's put it this way, um, the, the reason that they, why do they want to measure weight change in the first place? Well, because they want to talk about what people have eaten and how much people have exercised. If you use the criteria for evaluating the outcome as proof that the things that you're measuring to get the outcome have occurred, I mean, that's a tautology if I've ever seen one, right? It's, it makes no sense. It's like saying, so, so Peter, you're an athlete, right? If you have some guy who steps in at the end of the race and breaks the ribbon at the finish line, right? He's like, well, look, you know, that just goes to show you I ran the race because I broke the ribbon at the finish line. That's what Willett is doing here. We look at your weight change and we know what you did for the past 10 years. Uh, no, you don't. You didn't even see if I ran the race. You just saw me break the ribbon. That's so right. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this Peter, Peter's got the right thing. We've got to get the information out there in a palatable form that can start that conversation. And and this is a good place to say it. One of the things I'd like to kind of close this with, um, uh, Naomi, you there and all that, is is this idea of scarcity. Um, you know, you have to have this food or that food. It, it's, there's a sort of a, a scarcity a fear factor in there. And one of the thoughts I've been having lately is, you know, I, I always go back with what were the evolutionary pressures that shaped us as humans? And this whole thing that's always you hear about feast and famine and why we have to gain weight to store it. 
I don't buy that. And I'm going to put this and I've got the perfect audience and Peter here to um, hear me out on my, my wild hypothesis. But I don't buy the feast and famine for humans in terms of our development, because I think one of the things that caused us, one of the major factors that caused us to become successful as a species and to spread out across the earth was simply the fact that we were very, very rarely in a famine state until we started inventing agriculture and foods and all this. We started messing a little too much with the system because when we migrated out of the jungle into become savanna hunter-gatherers, mostly hunters, what we did was we followed the large ruminant herds and their migrations. And there's a reason why they call livestock livestock, because by following those huge wild animal herds, it represented a very stable food source. And when you look at the great migrations of the caribou or the buffalo or in Africa on the Serengeti, and you read the annals of people who went into Africa in the 17, 1800s or came to the, the Great Plains in the U.S., there was hardly any scarcity. And the, the humans that were following these great herds were considered, you know, supreme specimens of human health and fitness. And so I think that that, to me, is a really good guideline. And so and so were the people who are living along the, the coastal areas where they had good fisheries and, and oysters and shellfish. So this idea of scarcity in terms of our evolutionary heritage, I, I, I question that, that we needed that fat storage and all that, that we were actually, you know, co-evolved with these other biological systems in, in such a way that we were symbiotic and we, you know, we were, and we were eating these ruminant herds because they were that stable food source. Peter, your comments? Well, I, I, there's so many things there and, uh, you know, we might be here till midnight. Um, yep. There, there, there's a couple things though that I just throw out. One is uh, there's a very, you know, uh, successful author who's made some comment about how agriculture was the worst mistake in, you know, of mankind. My retort is that, well, then it's remarkable that it was repeated seven or six other times across the face of the earth, geologically separated, geographically separated from each other, using different plants, different animals, um, and they didn't have contact with each other. It's remarkable, the timing. Uh, it's all, you know, subsequent to the, the, the end of the last major glaciation. Um, and there's even an interesting thought that says that agriculture really only became possible as the carbon dioxide levels increased. Now, I know I'm getting close to other things. I see the soapbox not going there, but I'm just, so much of this conversation back to Adele's point, is is so confounded uh, and, and intertwined and, and interdependent that it's, it's very hard to pull it apart. Uh, what drove us out of the trees? Well, maybe it had something to do with a drying climate. Well, what produces a drying climate? Oh, cold does. So grasslands are the biome that exists after forest you know, savanna and then pure grassland. So and what, wasn't it just recently that we had a major find reported that pushed the, 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 the age of hominid fossils back a couple hundred thousand years and up into Morocco 
out of East Africa. So we, we're learning more things all the time, and these can inform the conversation. The, the, the point about massive herds of bison, which is sort of typical thought, there's actually a, uh, a theory that says that those massive herds didn't exist prior to Columbus, you know, Columbian exchange. That that they, the the bison, like everything else across North America, were resources being managed by human beings. And when those human beings were removed due to the zoonotic diseases that were introduced from Europeans, sometimes without even having to have direct contact human to human, the capstone species of those ecological systems was removed and you had this massive explosion in bison. And the quote goes something like, they didn't exist prior to Columbus and they couldn't have existed much after, right? So, so that, and again, perception and mythology and narrative forms yep. this, it, it, it's so hard because, but to your point, certainly as human beings moved into, uh, moved away from the equator, there had to be means for us to deal with seasonality in food supply and scarcer food supply during significant periods of the year. And the fact that we don't have to deal with that anymore, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, I, I think that's probably a good thing, and thank you for Frigidaire and uh, whoever invented the, 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 you know, the frozen uh, TV dinner. Um, it, it, we, we have remarkable abilities today to help human beings thrive. And that, I think, is certainly something that, that focuses my, in all that that means, for all of the manifold splendor of the diversity of humanity across the face of this earth. And we've got more coming, and how are we going to help them to solve the problems that they're going to face, and they're not going to be able to do that if they're hamstrung by spending a billion dollars a day on diabetes care. And so all of these questions, you know, we, we are not our ancestors, we aren't our descendants, um, we can be informed by all that, um, but at the end of the day, we don't have to live in their world. Um, and I guess I don't want to go too much further onto it because there's so many things there to unpack, Peter, which is part of why I like talking with you and Adele so much because um, my brain gets full and now I need to go <laughs> consult my notes. Okay, well, we'll think about that, that lot following those ruminant herds because the, 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 the current uh, few nomadic uh, people who are living in that bucolic life pre-agriculture still that's still the practice they do and it's it's kind of interesting um adele uh, let's close this up naomi had to already go but um your thoughts and 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 let's kind of bring this full circle for the people who managed to listen to us for an hour and a half on on this whole messy <laughs> uh food politics policy etc well, I, I'm going to go back to something that you said, which is um, we are very robust. 
the way that I put it is we are adapted to adapt. Um, and we have to remember that, uh, that this is, you know, we've thrived as agriculturalists, we've thrived as pastoralists, we've thrived as hunter-gatherers. There is not one, there was not one right way to be a human all of those many years ago. There's not one right way to be a human now. There's not one way to care for the earth. There's not one way to eat. And we need to recognize that and we need to um, quit. <laughs> I know that tribalism is part of being human, but um, I think it's time for some, some actual conversation here. Yeah, no, and, and I think that uh, you're right because it, it's, 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 it's trade-offs and it's balancing those trade-offs because, you know, we went from being, say, hunter-gatherers, pastoralists to agriculturalists, and, and it was agriculture that allowed people to have the freedom to build, you know, these great societies that we have. And, and today with technology, you know, we've explored on my podcast some of the downside physiological effects as well as the psychological effects of, of technology and it's not to freak people out because technology has enriched our lives. I mean, we wouldn't have this this conversation today with right. you on the East Coast, Peter in Oregon, and Naomi in Australia if it wasn't for technology. But at the same time, there are some down downside effects. So it's it's about balancing that, and and I think working within the construct of nature to work with our natural world rather than try to be arrogant and and stand stand it down. I mean, I think I think the. Uh, the thought I've had least lately is about defiance and all animals, all, all, all living beings have this built-in defiance because it's about, you know, my theory of two S's, sex and survival. And, you know, you need that to, to go, but, but when it ranges into our own arrogance, that's where we sort of step on ourselves. Yeah. So, a dose of humility would be nice. That's exactly it, which would allow us to listen, really listen to the other conversation. Peter, anything to add? Um, good night, Gracie. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, continue the conversation and uh, keep going. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me back. That was a pleasure to both yeah. of the Peters and Naomi. Yeah, and uh, Adele, let's let's uh, Peter and Adele, let's keep that conversation going. We'll have we'll have to do some more at the right time. Have some more stuff coming up. And you're working on a new book, Adele. Um, me, I'm working on a dissertation. Oh, <laughs> Peters, Peters working on a book. I'm working on a dissertation, which will be a book. I probably many years from now, but not. Not anytime real soon. All right. Well, superb. Okay. Well, that's been another conversation with Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.